As Kelly said in the video you just saw, that's Japan. That's our home where we live. And you saw some temples and you saw some shrines and you saw some people actually going to uh, worship at those places. And that's because Japan has a national religion, actually two. Shinto is for life and it doesn't offer anything for death. And Buddhism is for taking care of your afterlife. And so for a Japanese person, if you ask them what's their religious preference, they're probably going to give you one of those two answers because that's what it means to be Japanese. And to not be Japanese is to not live. That's where their identity is, is being Japanese. And that's what tells them who they are is the fact that they are Shinto in life and Buddhists in death. However, if you take that question on to a conversation, if you take it on to the beginnings of a relationship, you find that unlike, not unlike many Americans, they have found their significance. They have found their meaning and their purpose in life and actually in what they have or what they don't have and what they can do or what they cannot do. You see, like many of us, they live as though their most foundational need in life is actually physical. And in doing so, they believe that both their problems and the solutions to those problems are out there. But as you and I know, you and I who follow Jesus, who know Jesus and know the salvation that he offers and the transformation that he gives, you and I know that that's just not the case. That our most foundational need, that their problems actually go straight to their heart and that they are spiritual. Although they may try, although we may try, we can never satisfy the needs of our heart with what is out there. We can never solve our problems with what is out there in our physical world. We all need heart-transforming power found in the grace of God through Jesus on the cross. It's only there in the gospel that we meet the creator of the universe coming to us in the biggest display of love that we know nothing about apart from him to die for our rebellion and the brokenness that it's brought about into our world. We need the gospel. The lost world that's growing exponentially with more people every day having no access to the gospel needs the gospel. We just sang about the promises of God, God being a promise keeper. And as I was singing, I couldn't help but think about the song that we sing when we do family worship that says, it's quoting a scripture passage from 2 Corinthians 1. It says, all of God's promises are yes in Jesus. We need Jesus. The lost world needs Jesus. Right now, over, there are over 7 billion people in our world. And of that 7 billion people, only 4% are professing evangelical Christians. Billions of people live in places and amongst people groups where the gospel is unknown. And like the Japanese, these people may have seen the church but have no idea what goes on inside or what its purpose is. They have never met someone who follows Jesus, and they may have absolutely no access to the Bible. They will grow up, and they will live without the peace that Jesus provides, and they will die without ever hearing the truth about who Jesus is and what he has done. 
And these people will face the judgment seat of God based on their own record of sin and imperfect justice, they will be condemned. Our efforts to reach the world with the gospel are not keeping up with the growth of the world's population. And our efforts are certainly not completing the task of making disciples of all people groups in all the earth. I have a question. What do you think the key to turning that around is? What is the key that would make the difference? See, different people give different answers. Some people say political stability or world peace. Some even people even say the development of new technologies. However, according to the passage of Scripture that you and I are going to read together today, you and I are the key. The church of Jesus is the key. The key component to the missionary enterprise. You, as a church that loves Jesus and believes his word, are the essential ingredient in getting the gospel to your community and to all peoples of the earth. So today, I would like for us to open together Romans 10. And I'd like for us to read from verse 5 until verse 17. Romans 10, chapter 10. Romans 10, verse 5 through verse 17. And I'll be reading from the ESV. Romans 10, 5 through 17. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that is, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, and in your mouth, and in your heart. That is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For the heart, for with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture say, it says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. To better understand our passage that we just worried, we must first look at the context of the book of Romans. Romans was a missionary support letter. A, the, the Apostle Paul wrote it to a church that he did not start nor he had ever visited, visited before. He did so because he needed their help to carry out his missionary calling. He had spent years sharing the gospel and started churches all, churches all over the eastern regions of the Roman Empire. And he now wanted to go to Spain, Spain which lied at the other end of the Mediterranean Sea because no one had taken the gospel there yet. And in order to get there... He had to travel through Rome, which lay right in the middle of his route. 
And he hoped that the church of Rome, which had been started by some anonymous Christians at some point during the decades since Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection, would become a missionary sending partner with him. He wrote the letter to tell them the things they needed to know about what he believed and the message he preached so that they could feel confident in supporting him. And in the process, Paul laid on the most thorough presentations of the gospel we find in the whole New Testament. The letter begins with the most foundational problem of anyone, regardless of culture or social status, faces. That problem is the problem that's only solved in the gospel of Jesus, and it's the problem of sin. The nature of sin is rebellion against God, and everyone on earth is a sinner. No one is righteous. No one seeks after God. No one does good. Everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, a good religious person, or you make skepticism, your skepticism, known to everyone around you. Every person in the world has rebelled against God, and as a result, everyone deserves God's judgment. We've gotten ourselves into a mess that we cannot get ourselves out of, and we need righteousness to stand before God, but we are not righteous. We are all rebels. We're sinners. Now, if this were the end of the story, we would have no hope. However, God has done something amazing. He has given us his own righteousness as a free gift. To be clear, that gift cost him his life and only costs us our trust in it. Next month, we celebrate the coming of God's righteousness to us. Jesus redeemed us by living a life in right relationship to God and others and dying the death that we deserve to die, taking on him the wrath of God that we deserve to receive. He took the guilt and the punishment of our sin and gave us righteousness as a free gift. We receive this gift not by working for it or earning it, but by simply believing in him, by trusting in him to save us. This is the heart of the gospel. It's the center of the message that Paul preached. Jesus, the Messiah, God himself in human flesh, became a man to be our substitute, living the life that we should have lived and dying the death that we deserve to die. He rose from the dead as a conquering king of kings and the Lord of lords. Everyone deserves condemnation from God, but everyone who believes and trusts in Jesus for salvation will be saved. There is now, this is why Paul says in Romans 8, 1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, this brings us to our text in Romans 10. In this passage, Paul draws a line directly from his understanding of the gospel to his ministry in the gospel, to his ministry as a missionary. He first spells out what it is that a person must do to be saved. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This involves inward belief that spurs on action, the first of which is an outward confession. It encompasses both who Jesus is, Jesus is Lord, and what he did. He died and rose again. 
A person is saved then by believing in the person and work of Jesus and by confessing both to the world in word and deed that he is your Lord. Just to make it plain how free and universal this salvation is, this offer of salvation is, Paul summarizes by saying in verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. When Paul says early in the book of Romans that sinful people are justified by faith and not by the works, this is what he means. Jesus is Lord. He is God himself in the, in the human flesh, the sovereign king of the universe. He died as a sacrifice for our sin and rose again from the dead. And everyone who puts their trust in him and chooses to live a life in obedience to him is saved. From the penalty of their sin, they're set free from the power of sin, and one day they will be set free from the presence of sin. That is good news. It's the news that your friend, your lost family member, the world needs to hear. At this point, Paul applies divinely inspired logic to the gospel that he has just preached. And he does so through a series of questions that we will call the missionary logic of the gospel. Look at verse 14. The first question is this. How will they call on him whom they have not believed? In other words, just saying some words is not enough. Repeating a prayer that does not reflect the convictions of your heart will not save you. Yes, we must call on Jesus to save us, but we must call on him from a believing heart. We are saved by grace through faith. The plan of salvation requires that sinners believe in Jesus before any words of their mouth can ever do them any good. And then the second question begins the transition from the content of the gospel to the imperative of missions. It says, how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? The expected answer is obvious. They can't. Saving faith has a specific content. You have to hear about Jesus, who he is and what he did in order to believe in him. Saving faith is not a vague general confidence in the goodness of God or a Pollyanna optimism about the future. Saving faith is confident trust in a specific message about a specific person with a specific name, Jesus. No one can be saved if they've never heard the message of the gospel. This is the greatest need of every man, woman, and child on the face of the earth to hear and believe the good news of Jesus. And then we get to the third question. It completes the transition to the necessity of missions. It says, how are they to hear without someone preaching? Again, the obvious answer is they can't. No one can hear the gospel unless someone tells them. God did not give the task of evangelism to angels. The message of the gospel cannot be figured out by intuition or by studying nature. The only way anyone can be saved is for someone who knows the gospel to go to them and tell them. This is God's plan for the salvation of the world. This is why Jesus told his followers that they would be his witnesses from the very place that they stood and to the very ends of the earth. God's method for saving sinners is for his people to go to every people group and to every place in the world to tell them the glorious news about who Jesus is and what he's done. 
Only those who can hear can believe. Only those who believe can call on the name of the Lord. And only those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, after 2,000 years, you might think that we're at least close to finishing this task. But we're not. As I already mentioned, there are billions of people who have no access to the gospel. And every day we estimate that over 150,000 people die every day without hearing the gospel. Those people have no hope because they have never heard about Jesus. They have never believed in him, and they have never believed in him because they are not. And, and, and because they've never believed in him, they are not saved. There is no plan B. There is no way to be reconciled apart from God and apart from hearing and believing the good news. They must hear to be saved. And the responsibility for making sure that they have heard the gospel belongs to those of us who have already heard it and who already know it. In other words, you and I, the church, the living representatives of the kingdom of God on earth, are God's plan. A. And I hear that, and I look down, and I think, really, God? Me, my wife, our brokenness, our selfishness, as long as it took us to say yes to you, as long as it took us to even join a Bible study, as long as it took us to be convinced that we are to go to people who don't know you, we are your plan A, to which there's no plan B. I think about Jeremiah, in which he's very transparent about his call in Jeremiah 1, 4 through 10. God comes to him and says, I chose you before I formed you in the womb. I set you apart before you even birthed into the world to be a missionary, to take the gospel to your community and to the people around you. How did Jeremiah take that? He came up with some excuses. He says, God, I don't really have the ability. I don't have the words. God, my social status is not where it should be. I feel like that a lot. I give God a lot of excuses. I forget that we, the church, are his plan A. God reminds Jeremiah as he's faithful to remind me, and I hope that he's faithful to remind you, that he goes with us, he will go before us, that we have to worry about what will happen and what will take place, but he will give us the tools that we need to fulfill and be his plan A. When you go across the street to your neighbor, when you intentionally invite people to your house for dinner, and when we take teams of people to go into regions of the world where the gospel has not been made known. We're his plan A, and God does not make plan B's. If you believe in the biblical gospel, you also have to believe in the absolute necessity of missions. Let me be clear when I say missions. I mean taking the gospel to people who have never heard so that in believing, they may become disciples of Jesus. This means both locally and every people group of the world. So when you pray, pray for God to open doors for the gospel both overseas and across the street. Listen, don't ever assume that just because your neighbor lives on a street with five churches that they don't need you. A living, breathing 
believing disciple of Jesus intentionally in their lives. Don't ever think that because they do. Now we get to our fourth question that Paul asked, and it brings a new wrinkle into the logic of the gospel. And it says this, how are they to preach unless how are they to preach unless they are sent? You ever wonder why you don't see God raising up a bunch of people completely tooled and resourced in the church, and they just jump up one Sunday after Sean's wonderful messages and say, hey, I'm ready. I won't be here next week. I'm headed out of here. I'm going to the lost people of the world. Next week, I'll be in Botswana or somewhere in South America, or I'll be down the street starting a new church plant. I've even wondered why people don't just get saved and in a moment jump to the full maturity of Jesus. Why wouldn't you do that, God? But God meant for all of us, for all we do as followers of Jesus, to be done as a body. We are a team. We are a family. And our family has been specially authorized by Jesus to do one thing. Make disciples. In Matthew 28 when the risen Jesus appears before his disciples, do you remember what he said? He says, all authority has been given to me. All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Baptize them and teach them to obey all I've commanded you. God's plan A for reaching our communities, our nation, and the nations is his body, the church. The church has been authorized to make disciples, to train them and affirm their call and gather its resources to now send them out to make disciples. This means that everything we do, Sunday school, life groups, prayer meetings, shoebox collection, feeding the hungry, paving the parking lot, potlucks, if it is not with the ultimate goal of making disciples, then it is not authorized. This commission is not just the commission of the staff of your church. It is the commission for every person gathered in every worship service today that call themselves a follower of Jesus. Have you, as the local church that love Jesus and believes his gospel, set your eyes firmly on fulfilling the Great Commission? Here's a good question for each of us to ask ourselves today. Have I set my heart firmly on being a disciple that desires to make disciples, on being sent and sending so that those who have never heard can hear. Here I want to offer you four practical ways to become a disciple-making, a missionary-sending body that has its eyes set on fulfilling the Great Commission. The first of those is prayer. Prayer is a non-negotiable. Prayer is about getting our hearts aligned with the God who wants the people of all ethnicities to know him and the salvation that he offers. God has commanded us to pray, and all of us have testimonies of the ways that God's moved in incredible ways through our prayers. Pair up with people in your church to pray over parts of your community, asking God to show you ways in which the kingdom needs to show up right here. For example, we led our church to do this in Japan. 
And something we discovered about our community, which is very true throughout the country, is that young people were coming home from school every day, and I'm talking about middle school to high school, and of course college as well, to no one. And they were eating dinner alone. One of my cycling buddies told me, you know, lots of times I'll fix my meal and put a YouTube video on of a family eating dinner and eat with them. And when I heard that, this, I said, this is how the kingdom of God needs to show up in our community right now. So we started a dinner, a cheap dinner, where people could come. They could have food, but not just food, what their hearts are really desiring, which is a fellowship of other people. They get a chance to meet the living, breathing body of Christ. I've heard of churches sporting local school teams with a meal each week. There's lots of people on your teams in your, in, your, in your athletic departments that go home after practice to no one and a meal that they grab at the gas station. Uh, ask God who he wants you to have to your house for dinner this week. That's been one of the best things that my wife and I ever did. Pray at the beginning of the week, who is it, God, you want us to invite to our house today, this week, that doesn't know you and have a meal with them? so we can intentionally invest in them so that they might come to know him. Pray that God would open doors for the members of your church to take the gospel into your community. Pray for missionaries like us and other parts of the world to have grace and courage, endurance, and joy. Because the truth is, every day I don't. And it's your prayers that keep us there. Pray for our marriages Pray for our children. Pray that God would keep us faithful in sharing the gospel and not get distracted. Pray that he would accompany our words with his power to save. Because I'm sharing the gospel into a culture through a language that I really don't know. Without his presence, it doesn't impact with power. Pray, that the, the new, pray through the news, knowing that everything that happens is either an obstacle or an opportunity for missionaries around the world. Incorporate prayer for missions into every gathering of your church, both for the Sunday morning service and every small group Bible study. The first one is prayer. The second practical way you can focus your eyes on missions is to give Give of your time and your money to see disciples made. If Jesus' commission to us is to make disciples, then he commissioned all of me. That means my time and my resources, my money included. Invest in the open doors God gives you and your church to make disciples. Invest in sending missionaries around the world. Did you know that as Southern Baptists, we have one of the most incredible missionary sending agencies or mechanisms in the world? It can take years for a missionary to raise support. And after they raise it, they go to the field, but they have to soon return because those funds dwindle. But as Southern Baptists, we raise support for all of us. And we do this through two channels. One of those is the cooperative program. And this provides a little over one-third of the the money we need for missionaries, like our family. And the second channel, my wife and Sean have already spoken about, and that is the Lottie Moon Christmas Offering of which 100% goes to support families like ours across the world. And because of this system, IMB missionaries can concentrate 
on what God has called them to do in reaching the nation without fearing that they will no longer be able to support or take care of their families. Hey, next month we celebrate Jesus' birthday. Why don't we make sure that the biggest recipient of our generosity is the cause for which he came in the first place? Well, the third practical thing you can do is send. You can send people from your church into your communities with the intention of representing the kingdom in those communities where it hasn't been represented before or where it's currently not being represented. Develop a partnership with a missionary team somewhere in the world and find ways to bless them and help them do what they do. Few things revolutionize a church, the vision of a church. Few things revolutionize a disciple of Christ and even their marriage more than going overseas on a well-planned short-term mission trip. Studies have shown that people who align their churches and their marriages pray more with, with, with this vision of God, pray more, they give more, and they're more likely to go on long-term themselves. In fact, myself and my wife are a product of doing just that. I went on missionary trips with your pastor, Sean. And it's there that me and my wife prayed together for the first time in our marriage. It's from there that we started to put praying together as something we do and need to do and should be doing daily. It's there that we first discovered that we're partners in this gospel. This marriage is not just about us. It's about serving the kingdom. Be ascending church. Encourage each other to get involved and raise your children, raise your grandchildren to think that it's the most glorious thing in the world to take the gospel to people who have never heard it. And the fourth and final thing for practically aligning your eyes on fulfilling the Great Commission is to go yourself. Go. Don't just send others. Pray seriously about going yourself. You want to align your worldview more with God's. You want to understand the unlimited power of the gospel to save and to transform. Go. Sometimes we get to the point where we ask an unbeliever, don't you believe in God? But then we think, we should ask, why don't you believe in God? And in the same way as a follower of Jesus, I need to get to a place where I ask, instead of asking, why should I go? I should ask, why shouldn't I go? After all, this command of Scripture is clear, and the needs of the world are overwhelming, and your purpose for living as a child of God is to serve your king and live for his glory. It's there where you will enjoy him more than you ever have. I promise. I challenge everyone in this room to go to God in prayer before this very day is over and ask him honestly, why shouldn't I go? The gospel that saves us also compels us to share it with others. And that is the conclusion that Paul reached in his letter to the Romans. Most of this amazing book consists of a thorough, systematic explanation of the gospel. 
Now, Paul went through such detail, I believe, for two reasons. First, he wanted that church in Rome to know what his message was, know about him, so that they could support him without question. Second, as far as Paul is concerned, the very content of the gospel was what made his missionary service imperative. Paul wrote to the Romans to encourage them, to encourage this church to be an effective missionary, a disciple-making, and an effective missionary-sending church. And that same challenge now comes your way. God in his grace and mercy got the gospel to you, and with it comes the missionary imperative. Pray fervently for the advance of the gospel in your community and around the world. Give generously to, to, to the task of making disciples and sending missionaries. The task that which Jesse shared about this morning, the task that they've got their eyes laser focused on. And train up disciples and send them to the ends of the earth. And before you go to bed tonight, ask God honestly, why shouldn't I go? Let's pray. Father, we just bow our heads and from our hearts worship you right now, God, because you're worthy of being worshipped from this very place on the earth that you created, from the hearts and the bodies that you created for that very purpose. God, we worship you with everything in us. God, we do know, I have to admit, Lord, my eyes are easily distracted. They're easily put on the things that I need, the physical things, and I soon begin to believe that my needs and my problems are answered out there physically, but it's not, Father. It's in the very gospel that you gave us, and you sending Jesus to save us, to save us from ourselves. God, that very gospel tells us that we need to go. When we believe in it and we trust in it and we choose to follow after you, we hear your call on our lives to do the one thing that you authorized us to do, and that's make disciples. God, I don't know how to make disciples, but you do. God, I'm in, in, in completely incapable of making a disciple, especially a Japanese disciple. But you know how, and you can. Father, I pray that you would use me, use my family, use the people and their families in this very church to make disciples in their community, to make disciples around the world. And help us, Father, to, that, to find our joy in that. God, we love you and we thank you for Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.